Hello, and welcome to the Yarniacs podcast. This is episode 47, which we are recording in advance. So it is Friday, September 20th here. I'm Gail. And I'm Charlene. And we have a very, very special guest as part of our Wool series. Today, we are interviewing Clara Parks. Hello, Clara. Hi, guys. How are you today? I am doing very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, we are so, so thankful that you took the time to be on our podcast. We are extremely (laughs) flattered. This is very exciting for us. Yes, you are one of my all-time knitting heroes. (laughs) Aw, thank you. You're welcome. So as a way of introduction for anyone who doesn't already know, Clara has many, many claims to fame. She is. definitely. She is the owner and the, I guess you'd say author, of the Knitter's Review uh, weekly online magazine for fiber enthusiasts. And you can subscribe to her newsletter that comes into your mailbox once a week and tells you about nifty yarns. Yes, some new yarns, (laughs) some new tools, some new process. If you haven't signed up for the Knitter's Review, I highly, highly recommend it. It's always good information. Always informative, yes. Yep. And Clara is also the author of several books, the Knitter's Book of Yarn, the Knitter's Book of Wool, Knitter's Book of Socks, and then most recently, The Yarn Whisperer. The Knitter's Book of Yarn is one of my favorite knitting resources. What was your story about it, Charlene? <laughs> I actually have a story about that book because I bought it shortly after it was published. And I was telling Gail that that is the one knitting book that has actually never left my nightstand. It, it, most of my knitting books will start out on my nightstand and eventually make their way into the bookcase or my office or my knitting area. But that one has never left my nightstand because I'm constantly pulling it out to read a little bit about something that will help me out with a project, a little bit of wool, you know, just something. There's always something that I can find in there. I love your writing style, Clara. Oh, you pay me the highest praise. Thank you. <laughs> well, and I'm hoping someday you do publish that mystery novel that you're taking notes on. Oh, it's going to be good. <laughs> I, I see. I look forward to that. Clara referenced that in her latest book, The Yarn Whisperer. And what kind of overview would you want to give people about that book, Clara? Um, I guess the, the overview would be that... Um, in a way, kind of jokingly, it's the Knitter's Book of Clara. <laughs> um, but it's really, um, in a way, it's telling my story, but it began and it was always envisioned as a way to help people really see all the ways in which knitting and life are so intermingled, far beyond kind of the, the easy stereotypic, you know, oh, I twisted a stitch, <laughs> but like really deeply you can find ways to explain your life and your story and and what's been going on with you just by looking at what you're knitting at the time and how the stitches are being worked and how they reflect against your brain. I don't, it's, it's, that sounds very esoteric and I don't mean it to be kind of esoteric, but um, on the lighter side, what I wanted to do is create a book that could also stay by your bedside table with just um, bedside stories that that don't force you to think about twist or ply in any kind of complicated way, but that still give you that feeling of having yarn and needles in your hands. Nice. And it's it's not that hard to do. And it, it wasn't from a 
Um, somebody had, had asked if it was like, you know, the, the kitschy thing that, you know, how every book has to have a gotcha. And it, and it really was not at all from that place. It was from a parallel that I drew between baubles and my grandma's skin tags. That was the essay that began the whole thing. <laughs> I loved that one. <laughs> well, I'm fond of that. Well, cause I'm fond of my grandma, but, um, uh, um, really it's just, there are a lot of really interesting parallels that you can you can find once you start looking for them. Nice. Yeah, it is autobiographical. Don't get me wrong, but it's not, um, you know, chapter one. I was born on May 20th in Rochester, <laughs> New York. <laughs> it's really approaching it from the stitch angle. Musings on stitches. I exactly. Yeah. yeah, you brought in parts of your life, but it wasn't a chronological journey right. through your life whatsoever. Yeah. No. Who wants that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved it. I thought it was a great book. And for anyone who hasn't already read The Knitter's Book of Yarn and The Knitter's Book of Wool, how would you describe those books? Um, I would describe those, uh, if I pretend that I wasn't the one who wrote them, because then I have a complete bias. <laughs> Um, what I wanted to give knitters was a kind of a, a, a reference a, a separate from, let's say, it sounds really boastful and I don't mean it to a bit, just like a timeless reference about how yarn is made so that you never need to be scared to do something with yarn again, that you can hold it, you can look at it, you can slightly untwist it. You can read the label and you, you can have a sense of confidence about what that yarn might want to become. Because I've, I've seen again and again so many people in shops and at fiber festivals, just um, their enthusiasm gets, gets stunted by a fear and an insecurity about doing the wrong thing. And so often um, the guidance that they're given may not actually be the, the best for that particular yarn. And so I wanted to give people the tools so that they themselves could have confidence to, to pick up a skein and start knitting and know where they're going with it and not have to feel afraid. I wish I'd read your book earlier in my knitting career because silk, it has no scales, so it doesn't hold the way wool does. I wish I'd known that before I tried to knit a shrug with a 100% wool, uh, silk skein that I picked up at Stitches one year. Oh. There, there, there are lessons to be learned that a lot of knitters, I think we learn the quote hard way, unquote, by knitting something that just doesn't work. So I think, and because your writing is so accessible, it's not like reading a textbook. It's like reading it's just a very accessible it's a good style read. of yeah, imparting it's a good knowledge. Read. Yeah. So, and that is actually part of what we're doing in this series is trying to understand what wool is, how it. Oh, but I did it again. Sorry. I, I get so excited with these interviews that I skip our normal segment. Well, no, I was going to try to segue into talk. Speaking of knitting. Yeah. What? Are you knitting, Gail? Okay, so I actually, at this very moment, am holding in my hands the Hogwarts Express Shawl by Susan Ashcroft, and I'm using my 100% Coradale fingering weight yarn from Alpenglow. So it's a different yarn. I've never knit with it before. I really like it. It's somewhat thick and thin, so I think the fact that this is a garter stitch shawl with the lace edging is really going to help with that thick and thin nature I'm trying to show Charlene right now yeah. but loving this yarn absolutely loving it what are you knitting Charlene 
Well, I'm in a spot right now where I've just recently finished a couple of sweaters, just took a shawl off the needles as well. So I've cast on a little kitchen cloth this morning so I could have something to, actually I'm crocheting it, cast this on this morning just so I could have something to work on while I'm talking today, but I'm more, more stocking at the moment. And what are you knitting, Clara? Um, right now I'm working on uh, Amy Herzog's Wintry Mix, that wonderful pullover with the big giant cowl neck. Oh, oh nice. that's so pretty. Nice. Yes, and it's in, um, it's one of my favorite yarns. It's Spirit Trail Fiberworks Holda. It's a blend of uh, wool, cashmere, and angora. Oh, nice. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I wish I had more time to work on it because it makes me extremely happy. Oh, that uh, sounds wonderful. Angora is one of my favorite fibers. Well, and oh, cashmere I don't, too. Don't get to work on it very much. Yeah. I, I, prefer, between the two, I have to say, I prefer Angora. Wow. <laughs> Angora is the, it's the unsung hero of fibers because everybody thinks of it as the poofy stuff that makes you nose itch, but done right, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, Spirit. I really love Angora. Mm-hmm. And what are you stocking, Gail? Well, I am still stocking just random things to do with different um, fiber yarns that I have in my stash. And one of the new things I'm stocking as of, well, I've been stocking it in advance of the pattern release because Charlene tested it, but Hohe's new pattern lipstick. I just realized mm-hmm. I think my Polworth silk, DK from Western Sky Knits might work for that sweater. Oh, okay. So I just got really excited thinking about that. <laughs> so that's what I'm stocking. And Charlene, what are you stocking? I am stocking two things right now that I'm considering casting on. One of them is the Nanook sweater by Heidi Kiermeyer. It is a cardigan with a scalloped edge front and it's kind of an unusual front and I like it and the back also has really nice lot increased lines on the back which they're unusual but they're very they're evenly spaced and they they just work all the way across the back and it looks really pretty so I'm thinking about that and then another hohe pattern window to my soul which I am I want to knit in a single ply and I'm trying to decide if I'm too late in the season for that sweater or, uh-huh. you know, I'm trying to say by the time I finish it, maybe it'll be too cold for that. But I really want that sweater and I have the yarn. So we'll see. Well, you we'll could always wear a long sleeve tee underneath. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And how about you, Claire? Are you stocking anything to start? Uh, well, um, Isolde Teague has a new book coming out. The Rhinebeck sweater. I don't know if you've heard about that. Ah, uh, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm staring at the lookbook right now on my screen, and she has a beautiful open cardigan called Pumpkin Ale. Oh, yeah. It's it's knit side to side, and it just has this beautiful open front with a slightly curled neck. And I I that's it's not going to be long before that becomes mine. <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful sweater. I totally agree. Nice. Excellent. Okay, so now we can get into the (laughs) nitty-gritty. Well, let's talk about the Knitter's Review. Let's say each month in Knitter's Review from you, Clara, we usually see you review a sampling of yarns, I guess, in a particular fiber category. Is that how it's done? 
Um, that was how it was done early on. And then I realized I needed a little bit more freedom to kind of go wherever I felt like readers wanted to go and wherever, like if something arrived in my mailbox, I wanted to be able to immediately that week be able to talk about it. So now it's really, um, as the wind blows, kind of what's happening in the knitting product world, if it's yarns. Nice. Yeah. I've noticed that you, you use some major yarn manufacturers. You also review yarns from smaller production mm-hmm. places, mm-hmm. Uh, yarn producers. And mm-hmm. what, I guess your process, you usually knit a swatch and then it sounds like you have a battery of tests that you usually perform on each swatch. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I actually, I knit several swatches and one of them remains my control swatch so that I can know how it would have looked had I not washed it, had I not flogged it, that kind of thing. Um, and that, that is just a big stockinette swatch with garter edging just so that I can kind of have a control and then the next one, I start with that so that I still know from a gauge perspective what's happening. And then I just um, let the yarn tell me how it wants to be doodled, whether it wants to be ribs or um, seed stitch or if it wants to do some different kind of cabling. And depending on the yarn, if I fall in love with it, I'll just keep going until the skein is done. Um, and then I'll bind that off. And washing, washing is an interesting phenomenon that is, is worth taking the time to play with if you ever have the time. And I know a lot of people don't, so. But, um, filling a glass, a clear glass bowl with lukewarm water and I give it a slosh of a, a gentle dish soap, like ivory dish soap. Okay. Um, because for me, that's, it's sort of the, the control soap if we're not using a capital W wool wash, but you're just using what you have or a gentle shampoo, just any kind of a really mild soap. And um, when you drop it in and you swish it around, if it's in a clear bowl, you can very easily see what's happening in terms of color. Right. But then what's also fun is um, you pull it out of that bowl and you leave it and then I'll rinse in another bowl, same temperature water. And later you will see in some yarns more than others a, a thin layer of kind of uck down at the bottom of the bowl, mm-hmm. like brown, mucky, weird stuff. It's it's fascinating. You can see what came out of your skein. And so a lot of times when people tell me that they can't knit with certain yarns, uh, I've washed it and I've seen what came out. And so the first recommendation would be wash the skein first because you might be reacting to stuff still in the yarn. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. And I'm going to actually ask a question from a user right now. She had a very good question related to what you just said, which I've never done, actually looked for the muck in the bowl, which is very smart. She was wondering, for non-superwash wools, you know how sometimes they have almost an oily feel to them? And she was wondering if that feeling is from oil that's added by the mill during the spinning process or if it's actually the lanolin in the wool. It can be both. It, okay. it can be, um, it, in fact, a combination of both, depending on where it was processed, depending on um, what if, if it was a really lanolin-heavy 
wool, a lot of the fine wools, merino, rambouillet, um, cormo, targi, they have a heavy percentage of lanolin in there. And then if you sent that to a, will, a mill that's known for minimal processing, like Green Mountain Spinnery, they're going to leave a lot of that wonderful natural lanolin in there. Um, but then they need to use a spinning oil while the fibers are moving through the equipment, especially during the carding process. It's kind of it helps lubricate the fibers and helps them separate from one another so that they can be spun really evenly. Um, that's going to be left in there too. And if you get a natural skein from some place like Green Mountain Spinnery, chances are it hasn't been scoured because it has to be washed once it's dyed. Um, but even then, it might not be washed at a hot enough temperature with a strong enough soap to get those oils out. So yeah, it's it's still in there. Not necessarily a bad thing. I like it. It makes your hands feel nice. Um, it helps make the yarn more manageable on your needles. Yes. So. But when you're doing the washing of the swatch, could both the lanolin and the oil from spinning be part of the muck in the bowl, or does that stay in the yarn? Yeah, no, it could be. It, it, you'd be more likely to lose the lanolin if you had it at a really high temperature. Oh, okay. So um, like over, I want to say 130 degrees is when you're really going to start to lose the lanolin. The spinning oil can come out at a lower temperature. So if it comes out at a lower temperature, then just the casual washing of the garment that you've made, it will continue to come out. Is, mm-hmm. there, is there a way to condition your garment? Like, let's say you've washed it several times and it does start to feel less, I don't want to say oily, but you can, you can tell a difference in the wool. Is it, is it, ever advisable to put something back into a garment to condition the wool? You totally can if you want to. I've, I've actually put hair conditioner in the rinse ah. sometimes. Yeah, just a very gentle. Some people even re-lanolin their sweaters if they want them to be waterproof, like a real fisherman's sweater. Oh. They will put some drops of lanolin that's been uh, emulsified into a liquid form. They'll put that in the rinse water. Um, the, the trick there is, of course, that's going to be very appetizing to moths, so it's a trade-off. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. Well, I have heard the conditioner trick before, so it's good that I'm hearing that from many sources because that's, oh, yeah. that's appealing to me. <laughs> well, and I also liked in your book, The Yarn Whisperer, you did point out, you told the story about the man who had the sheep. And he every morning he greeted it and ran his hands through the fleece of the sheep. And his hand, the dry skin malady he had, went away from the lanolin in the sheep. I mean, to me, that's it makes me want to knit with yarn that has lanolin still left in it because I really like that idea of having really soft hands. (laughs) Yeah, it really, I mean, lanolin is an amazing material. If you ever have any skin problems, I know somebody who had perpetual chapped lips. And, you know, tried the shea butter, tried all these other organic things. But but lanolin was designed to soften and protect skin. So it's like a perfect material for us. Yeah, it's it's actually recommended for nursing moms as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of blocked those things out, apparently. <laughs> okay, so I completely derailed you from telling us about your swatching process for the Knitter's <laughs> Review. So we got to the rinsing stage, and? Um, then I will squeeze it. I'll lay it out in a towel and blot it to dry, and I'll use a white towel so that 
if I mean I try to to rinse until the water runs clear, and um, then blotting it on a white towel is kind of a backup in case there's more bleeding. And usually that's only really a problem with tricky silks where the instructions were to um, to dry clean, oh. or with hand dye hand dyed yarns where saturation is kind of a trickier balance for them. They don't have the gigantic machines and tanks and chemicals and stuff. Um, and then I'll wait for it to dry and then I compare it to the previous swatch to see what kind of stitch or row gauge change do we have? What kind of halo do you have? Because a lot of times just the washing, it's going to transform your fabric. Suddenly the surface will, will bloom. It will look different or it won't bloom. And if you were hoping it would, you know, there's your, there's your lesson right there. Um, and then the flogging begins. Now there's actually, there's a cool machine out there. One day I, I think it, I, I would love to get one, but until I have an actual laboratory, um, <laughs> there's a machine called the Martindale Abrasion Tester. And it's, uh, I'm sure some guy is going to come up with a home version of this or some woman. Um, but you, you wrap a, a piece of fabric around what's kind of like an espresso tamper and it's clamped into this machine, which then rubs it vigorously against a harder piece of fabric, kind of a burlapy material. Wow. <laughs> and it'll go side to side to side to side. And then it they gen, generally moves from horizontal to vertical, but going side to side to side to side. And, and each full cycle of horizontal to vertical is considered one cycle. And so, like the sock manufacturers, they'll talk about how many Martindale cycles this fabric was able to withstand before it, it started to pill or it started to um, have breaches in the fabric's structure. I love that. A breach. My sock has breached. <laughs> yeah. Logo mystic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I don't have the, uh, the Martindale abrasion tester, but I basically simulate that by hand myself. Right. Oh, and so you you don't just put it inside your coat and wear it around. You actually no. really. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I'll I'll also do that. Then there's the pill part. I mean, not the pill part. The um, the prickle factor after after I've abraded it to try to. It's it's basically what does it take to make this yarn pill? And some yarns will just start to degrade immediately. Others can withstand it longer. And then from a touch perspective, I usually tuck it down my shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I run into troubles because I always forget that I've done that. <laughs> and then I'll go, you know, like, God, everybody's just saying, please, people, my eyes are up here. And then I realize, wait, no, I've got a, you know, a swatch sticking out of my shirt. <laughs> Sigh. But the mail, my letter carrier, she's used to it now. So it's like, oh, got another one, do you? The things you do for your readers. <laughs> I am committed. I am committed. That's great. That's great. I, I love and it. I should be committed. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I love the Knitter's Review. It always, I almost always learn something every single time that you put out oh. a new one. It's great. So oh, thank you. With all the yarns available and all the yarns that must be submitted to you, how do you choose which ones to feature? Um, because you don't always choose yarns that are easily commercially available sometimes you do but sometimes you don't um so how do you pick a balance between yarns that everybody can find in their local local yarn stores and perhaps yarns that everybody can afford that sort of thing 
Well, it's, it's tricky. It's, um, I'd like to say that I have a very, very refined algorithm. <laughs> it's not an algorithm. It's really, um, it has to start with a spark. If, if the yarn doesn't immediately speak to me when it, I open the box, it's really hard to find a story, to find the story in the yarn. Yeah. Um, but then it becomes a question of, is this a yarn that everybody can find very easily? And if so, what is the need for a review? Because it's the, the initial purpose of Knitter's Review was to be eyes and fingers for people who couldn't access certain kinds of yarns. And that's why some of the most common mainstream yarns I don't review, because you can go and touch it for yourself. Unless there's a quality in that yarn that you need to know about that you wouldn't know just from touching it in the store. Um, and then it becomes kind of, it's, it's the question of what have I written about before? What's coming up? Um, you know, I try not to go too heavily with one specific manufacturer. And then there's the question of is this yarn available now? And if not, how soon will it be available? Because you don't want to review a yarn that isn't available yet. And then there's the question, always kind of the last minute question is, uh-oh, who's advertising this week? Because I don't handle the advertising within Knitter's Review at all. It's very, very separate. Oh. So that there's there's no bias and there's no perceived bias. I don't even know until the Monday of that week who that week's advertisers are. Mm -hmm. And so the, the last check is actually, is that person advertising, in which case... I will do everything possible not to review that product that week right. because there's, there's no, there's no bias and I don't want there even to be a perceived bias. There can't be, or the whole premise of what I do would be invalidated. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a, a good decision because you're right. Nobody really understands what's behind the advertising. Now, another, the same listener, Maggie had another question, which is kind of related to that. You seem to have your, finger on the pulse of the yarn industry and kind of where things are heading because you get to review so many things. And one of her questions was, do you think that there's a growing market for the organic and different breed yarns, or do you think it's still going to remain a niche market? I think there, I'm definitely seeing a rise in breed specific yarns. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I, <laughs> you mentioned Alpenglow, and that's one of my favorite sources for breed-specific yarn. I mean, she goes out. I I love those yarns. Um, but I I do think um, an organic to a certain degree. I think the challenge there, what what I'm seeing and what I would like to see is a rise in um, yarns that are not certified organic. However, they are traced back to an environment where they are minimally processed, minimal chemicals, because the, the organic certification is a large barrier for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, I understand that. I've, I've worked in food, and I know that, there, yeah, you have to go through certain hoops, and it takes, yeah. in some cases, years, even though yeah. you may be currently producing in an organic state because you have yeah. to go through years of cleansing the soil, that kind of thing. It can take a long time, so I understand that. Yeah, and and the fees. I mean, if you're a sheep farmer, the 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 fee could be what you would be getting for eight of your fleeces that year. So it it doesn't always make sense. I think it's a, it's a great standard to aspire to, but I I 
hope there can be a middle ground. There has to be a level of trust and transparency there. Yeah. But um, like in cotton, I know that there is not enough certified organic cotton being grown in the world to to supply the number of certified organic cotton products being marketed. Interesting. <laughs> well, and that's a good question too then, Clara. If How does the consumer, how do I as a yarn buyer, know the different sources of yarn where they have done more environmentally friendly processing? Maybe they're not certified organic, but how do I know where to source that wool? Oh, that's a tricky... I, I think... The people who are who are doing this, I, I guess, for now, it's an opportunity to exercise your little gray cells, as Poirot would say. Research, so, research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I mean, if you're buying it from a farm, from any small farm or farmer or specific, if you know where the yarn has been spun, you're going to have a lot of information right there. And most of the small farms what they're doing, even the bigger farms, what they're doing is going to be what I would consider eco-friendly. Um, cotton is a trickier one, and I think for now it's going to be a matter of reading up, reading up on who is selling it to you and what are they saying, and then also just being very smart, using your own filter for um, what is reasonable and where you might start to smell some BS coming into the marketing speak. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just, you know, be cautious about that. So it's all kind of a learning process. It is, which makes it really fun. I mean, it's, it's, you get to be your own investigator. Yeah, so. which is, it's very educational. You know, and yeah. one of the things that we get constant comments and questions on and that Charlene and I both have struggled with a lot over the last few years is the difference between superwash and non-superwash. And mm -hmm. because we're talking about environmentally sound processes and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about what the superwash process is and what it does to yarn fibers? Sure. Well, superwash, that, that actually, that word is a trademark of, it used to be the International Wool Secretariat, and now I think it's Australian Wool Innovation Limited, blah, 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 blah. But there's, there's superwash and then machine washable wool. Right, right. Okay. And I, um, I think it's, is it something similar to, let's use the organic certification sort of thing where if anybody wants to use the term superwash, I assume they have to pay fees to use that word? Um, you, it's actually, you have to use that process in order to use the word. Okay. So it's sort of like Kleenex and tissue. I say that because I have a cold. <laughs> But it, yeah, so it's, it's, and, and the reason they've trademarked it is that it's a process that they are confident will produce consistent results. Okay. So that if you see that word and it's, you know, capital S, then you know that it actually there's, it followed a specific process. Otherwise it should technically just be labeled machine washable. Okay. All right. I have a lot of um, questions about this, but why don't you tell us what exactly the wool goes through in this process. Okay, well, I and I know that Deb has already talked to you about scales and um, the, the microscopic scales that line the surface of wool fiber. And wool is highly, highly absorbent. So when you put it in water, if you put it in warm water, if you put it in warm soapy water where the pH has been raised a little bit, the fiber swells and swells and swells and swells and those scales pop out. And it becomes like a box of coat hangers. And if you start to jiggle it, they are permanently enmeshed. 
and that is what felting is. So to, to make a wool machine washable, to make a wool able to withstand hot water, soap, and agitation, they have to get rid of those scales. But the problem becomes those scales are there to protect what's inside the fiber. So the, the common practice now is to subject the fiber to a type of enzyme which just nibbles away at the protruding ends of the scales and it leaves the rest intact. So it's almost like nair for your fiber. Oh gosh. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, and so what that does is it, it, it kind of buffs the fiber down. It changes its surface so that when submerged in warm, soapy water and agitated, there's a less of a likelihood for anything to pop out that can become enmeshed. So the phenomenon that knitters frequently lament with superwash wool is the fact that once their garments have been knit and finished, they go to block it and then it grows to yep. disturbing. <laughs> and I understand that that is because of the scale removal. Is that correct? Yeah. It's like, if you think about it, your sweater was a set of bamboo DPNs, right? Nice surface friction between the fibers that holds them in place. And suddenly you transformed it into Addy Turbos. <laughs> the fiber, it's now slick and it becomes slippery. There's less, like twist is the primary thing that's holding the fibers together, but deep within the yarn, it's actually the scales on the fiber surface helping them hold together. So if you remove that, it, they become more slippery and they will slide more readily and that is why when you go to wash a lot of machine washable wools and you pull it out and you keep pulling and you keep pulling and you keep pulling and suddenly you have a tunic where you were hoping for a cardigan right yeah your chap the chapter in the yarn whisperer where you talk about dropped stitches i think mm -hmm. it's also a great analogy where if you have a super wash wool or a fiber with minimal or no scales if you drop a stitch, it just goes boom all the way to the cast on versus yep. the more scales, the stronger mm -hmm. that stitch holds and doesn't unravel. Yeah, it's more spunky. It has more personality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, now if the scales are removed and perhaps there are different, like you said, maybe there are different processes, but another thing that has happened to me with and it's probably machine wash wools, not super wash, because I, I, the most, the, the yarn that this has happened to me with has been a small, it came from a small independent dyer, and I don't think it was labeled as super wash. It was labeled as machine washable. But after, mm, let's say 20 washings or so, my socks all of a sudden did felt. And I have heard other people say this. No, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can't answer this. How does that work? If the scales have been removed, how does mm -hmm. a yarn suddenly? Well, the, or maybe they were only partially removed. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. They don't, it doesn't remove the scales because that would be like, um, like peeling asparagus. Suddenly you would have no outer surface. So it, it's nibbling off what is protruding. It's, it's like filing down a nail so that it doesn't snag, but the nail is still there. It's just there's not much sticking out to snag. So um, a couple of things could be happening there. In a weird way, I could almost imagine 
if it's a sock, if there's a lot of wear and the fibers are stretched, it's stretched to the point where more scale is protruding. Mm-hmm. Um, and another idea, though, is that the vast majority of superwash process, machine washable processing, uh, is taking place in China right now. There's some really cool stuff happening in Germany, and we even have a teeny bit happening in the U.S., but the majority of it is in China. And there are still some places where they actually will apply a very thin resin over the whole thing. Um, that's kind of like just glue it down. That's an old practice that they used to use and not so much anymore. But that's another possibility that you're getting it from a supplier who's doing something and we don't, there's no transparency whatsoever in the supply chain hmm. for those kinds of things. And so it's like, uh, I'd, I'd like to know what they to make it machine washable because it's got to be something in that process. And if it, if the fiber had been treated with some kind of a glue or a resin, it would just mean that after 15 washes, the resin finally came off. And surprise, you've got um, a slipper for a squirrel. Right. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so when this happens, and I'm just wondering, is it, like I said, the yarns came from small dyers, so they may necessarily not even know that this yarn, that this will happen to their yarn, that they're selling 20 washings down the road. I'm just... <laughs> oh, they just, would have... Yeah, they'd have no idea. Right. Whatsoever. So it's just frustrating to me as a consumer who has purchased, you know, several skeins of this yarn and then to have it happen to all of them. <laughs> Really? It's happened? Oh, well, well we're going to have to talk offline, okay? It, You're going to have to talk. Yeah, it, it was three skeins that I purchased from somebody. And, you know, I after doing research, and this has happened This happened several years ago, I found many, many other cases of this happening. And, I'm, you know, part of me understands that, okay, that the dyer doesn't necessarily know that's going to happen. And it, it's just frustrating. <laughs> And yeah. it's probably frustrating for the dyer as well. Oh, heartbreaking, I'm sure. And and the problem there is that dyers have a limited number of places where they can get blank yarns. Right. In you know, and they have inconsistent quantities because a lot of times they've had standing orders. I know some people like six months they've been waiting for a basic a base yarn to come in. So there's an eagerness there. Right. Um, yeah, I, I would. I have you sent a quiet message to this person just to let them know, or are they aware um, of it? I did, like I said, it happened years ago, and I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I don't really know if it was ever resolved, but it happened. It happened to other people too. But like I said, uh, I I got I wore them for a while. So, <laughs> well, and speaking of how wool gets processed, and you said there's no transparency in the different steps that your fleece goes through before it gets to you, the dyer, or you, the knitter, etc. But there's an exception to that called the great white bale, isn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> Well, and there is there is some transparency. Uh, just, I mean, I guess in general, in a very, very big sense, it's difficult to be there when things happen. And I've heard so many stories from people who really work to stay on top of every single part of the chain who just by accident happened to go into the mill the day that their fiber arrived and saw on the side it said South Africa. And they're like, wait, I ordered domestic. Oh, we didn't have any domestic, so I ordered 
but it, it, there's just like so many steps in which something can happen, even when you have the very, very best of intentions. Right. But yes, the great white bale. Ha ha ha. Yeah, but just a little so, background yeah. on that. I'm just fascinated by this. I, I am too. So please, let's. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, the great white veil is, see, here's the problem. <laughs> when, when you get known as a, a person who loves yarn, like really deeply passionately loves yarn and wants to know more about how it's made, you start to befriend more people. And those people, instead of being just fellow knitters, they now suddenly have like spinning mills or yarn companies or huge flocks of sheep. And so one of those people is Eugene Wyatt, and he is a farmer uh, just north of New York City. He has a farm called Catskill Merino. That's the name of his, his yarn line. And he has, I think it's the largest flock of purebred Saxon Merino in the United States. He's a little more modest, but well, I don't know if it's the largest, you know, not one to boast. Um, but he's very interesting and extremely principled and fussy about where his fibers go. And so, like, when Ralph Lauren wanted to buy some of his fiber, he quoted an absurd amount of money and kind of secretly hoped they wouldn't go for it because he wasn't comfortable with his fibers going someplace so big and far away. So um, we're friends. I had met him at Rhinebeck a bunch of years ago, and I'd written about his yarn, and every once in a while I kind of give him, you know, he'll tell me what this flock this year, just the, the shearing is done, and I just got the fiber tested, and it's 18.5 microns, which is cashmere range, the kinds of fibers that these sheep are growing. Oh. So um, last spring, he knew that I've sort of been curious about making yarn, but the problem is supply, that you can't really get a sufficient enough supply of domestic wool in all grades to be able to do a wide variety of things. So earlier this spring, he sent me his email about, oh, it's shearing time. We're going to be doing this, going to be doing that. And by the way, I know you'd, you'd mentioned that you were interested in making yarn. And I don't know, um, I have this 676-pound bale of scoured Saxon Merino, and it's, it's in Texas right now. And right now, it's more than I need. Dot, dot, dot. And so I um, thought for a minute and thought, Clara, you do not need 676 pounds. I didn't, couldn't even fathom, like, how big? <laughs> how, how, how big would 600 pounds? How many sweaters could you get out of that? So I took to the Internet saying, I do not need 676 pounds of merino. And, of course, everybody replied, like, Get it. Great. She got it. Clara bought a, bought a bale of wool. Like you, you can never count on knitters to talk you out of things. <laughs> we know that phenomenon. <laughs> yes. And, um, I don't know. So I, I told Eugene, yes, I would like to buy this. And then I started to think about, uh, you know, this could be a really wonderful opportunity, not just to make one yarn and sell it, which would be a very fine thing to do, but to, um, use this as as a kind of a traveling lab and walk through the whole process really it, it for me it felt like a a restaurant critic going to culinary school to really learn how to boil an egg 
instead of just criticize how other people do it. Oh, very good analogy. So, yeah, so I set up, I decided, well, because I love puns, so I thought, well, the great white veil. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I set it up so that there would be, people could share in the journey with me. And a certain number of people would actually receive the fruits of our labor. We would be going to four mills total, and it would be domestic in the United States. And I would try to make four different yarns out of this fiber. We would go to the scouring plant. I would go, I visited Eugene on shearing day. So I could see the atmosphere in which the fibers came off of the animals. I went to the scouring plant in Texas so I could smell the air. I could meet the guy who ran the equipment. I could see how it was bailed back together again, where it sat. Um, and then going to every single mill to meet the people who run the mill, to find out their story. And the story of mills in this country is both enchanting and heartbreaking in itself. And then watch as this yarn gets manufactured. And then after the first batch, the, the following three are dyed. So the first one I went out to California and um, went to a verb for keeping warm, where Christine walked us through dyeing with matter, natural dyeing. And then I thought, well, from natural progression from natural dyeing to hand dyeing. And so I picked uh, Jennifer Heverly of Spirit Trail Fiber Works. I have a weakness for Spirit Trail, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> and um, so I went and watched her, how she dyed this yarn to kind of show the, the, the hand dye process when you go to Rhinebeck, when you go to Maryland, when you go to Black Sheep, and you see those booths with all this incredible hand dyed yarn in it. What is going into every single skein that you get? And the final lot four, we're still waiting. Um, but that one, well, I can't say anything about it, but there's one more to go. And then we will have kind of gotten our accelerated master's degree program in domestic yarn manufacturing. <laughs> well, I have to say that I did just sign up for the armchair traveler. Mm -hmm. Since we've been researching all of your information for this interview, I am just enchanted by your blog posts and the videos and the pictures. And I'm only through to March right now. So for the people who are listening, Clara takes you from January when she gets the bail all the way through the process to here we are in September. And like you said, batch four isn't finished. Well, she put up at least two posts a month describing everything that's happening with the bail at that time. And I just made it through to March and the great unbailing when <laughs> they literally got this giant scoured bail. So it had been through the scouring process and Clara is cutting the wires on this giant <laughs> bale and you can see the fear that it's going to explode all over her. And I was just laughing so hard. It was so entertaining. <laughs> And Happy to delight you. <laughs> it was it was just charming, very charming. And I also watched the shearing. It's about a 10-minute video where they shear an entire sheep. And besides the fact that it just seems utterly humiliating for the poor, poor, poor sheep, little sheep, I know. It also, I was so pleased to see that that sheep was not in any, he wasn't in any distress whatsoever. No. No, he's no. just hanging out. I mean, obviously he's humiliated, but he's not... <laughs> bleeding he's not oh, no. upset he's just hanging out waiting yeah. to be done and yeah. that to me it was like oh good the poor little sheep aren't traumatized <laughs> yeah that was actually the one part of this that i dreaded the most 
that Eugene had invited me and oh, I really need to do this, but I did not want to take part in something that was scary for the animals, you know? Um, and it, it was so peaceful. It was so quiet and, and the sheep just one by one. And then when they were done, it's kind of like he had to wake them up to get them back up off the floor yeah, and they'd get up and they, you saw it. Yeah. They kind of shake and then they walked to the door and then they looked around, turned around and started to walk back over to see you know, there, it wasn't like screaming for help and then running away. It was, it was really interesting. Yeah, I, I loved that video. And I think in your post, you even said that at different sheep and fiber festivals, it's a much different environment for the sheep because they aren't yeah. in their own natural habitat. Yeah. And, they, you know, there are all sorts of things happening around them that aren't usual. But yeah. if they're in their natural farm, it's no big deal for them. It's just like, you know, you're going to get a haircut, <laughs> only a little more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and some of it depends on the, the shearing team who comes through. And I know like with the big ranches that have thousands of sheep out West, there is a bit more of a cowboy yeehaw, you know, slap them, throw them through the kind of attitude. Very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. when I was a kid at some point seeing sheep shearing, I believe it was at a county fair and one of the, it was some kind of a contest was who could shear the, the sheep fastest. the fastest. And mm-hmm. the only thing I remember about that is that they had to hold the sheep really, really tightly. And I just remember that. And I don't think the sheep were necessarily traumatized or anything, but I do remember it speed being you know everybody wanted to see how quickly they could shear the sheep so (laughs) well i remember i just watched the shearing video yesterday and you said it's a two and a half day event at eugene's farm and all i could Mm -hmm. think was these shearers are working from sunlight to sunset they must have the source backs ever when they're done (laughs) it's really incredible and and you can see i mean they they stand feet flat on the ground that completely bent over yeah. for hours and hours and hours. And that's why genuinely this, the shearing team that went this year at Eugene's farm, it was a new younger guy who was kind of taking over the previous guy. I think he was maybe 48 or 50. And it's like that there's, there's a time when shearers backs give out and that's when they move over to do things like start mills, for example, or scouring plants <laughs> when they, they want to stay working in sheep and wool, but they can't, uh, they just can't stand over, bend over for hours at end. Yeah. Physically. I, I could see that instantly. I have Definitely. pity for them. Yeah. <laughs> so like I said, Clara takes you through the whole journey in the great white veil. Now, Clara, if you could just give us a super high level overview, I don't, you know, no details because I know it's part of the great white veil process to learn all the details of it, which is, I'm loving. But if you could give like a super high level view of, okay, I got the bail, and then you, so you get a fleece, for example. So the first step is scouring, right? Mm-hmm. And then can you give just a general idea of what the high level steps are and kind of just a brief two or three sentence overview of what each step entails? Sure, well, in this case, the bail had already been scoured. So if it hadn't been, it would have been the case where um, the sheep were shorn early in the spring and put in these tall, clear plastic bags, 100 pounds. I don't say, well, maybe there were more, more in there than that. And they're all shipped off to Texas where the wool has to be scoured 
pretty quickly because it does start to degrade if it's left dirty for a long period of time. Um, and it's run through six separate tanks of progressively, the first three are soapy, the second three are rinse, and then it's dried and it is, it is blown, which I, I didn't appreciate enough, but sheep live outdoors. And so this stuff is really funky and there's a lot of dirt and dust in the wool. So it has to be run through this blower, which kind of vacuums out any more residual dirt and dust. And then it's compacted into a, let's say it's probably six by six feet wide by four feet deep, something like that by maybe four feet tall. It's compacted into a bale that is then wound with um, heavy baling wire and then wrapped in a heavy grade plastic and stored at the uh, scouring plant in Texas until you need it. And then you call them up and you say, hey, ship it to XYZ Mill. And in our case, I had them ship it to Biddeford, where the Saco River Dye House and Quinson Company, they have a space in uh, one of the old mills in Biddeford, Maine. Mm-hmm. So they kindly offered to be my storage facility for this. So the first thing that you have to do is open this bale to get the wool out. Which, as you remarked in the video, it's kind of a terrifying thing. I was told by several people, like, you have to get protective eye gear and you have to be careful. This is not something that's cute or funny, that these fibers are under an immense amount of pressure. And you could feel it. I had these wire cutters, long-hand, long-handed bolt cutters, and with their, with each wire that I cut, it made a loud boom sound and it made the floor shake. And people came from other parts of the mill, other parts of the dye house to find out what on earth was going on in here. Like, are you demolishing something? What's going on? Wow. Um, and, and then once you do that and it starts to decompact, that's not the right word, but bear with me. It, every time I took wool out of the bale and put it in bags and shipped it off to a different mill, it's like it naturally replenished itself. It never got smaller. It was a very creepy kind of a thing. <laughs> like, wait, I, I took 200 pounds out of there, and it's bigger than it was when we first opened it. Crimp is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So so then you, you would basically you bundle up the wool into a bag, and I would ship it off to a mill, and they would run it through um, some kind of a um, picker or something that would open and fluff up the fibers again. And then it gets run through a carding machine, something, any kind of way that you can, again, separate every single fiber from every other fiber. It's like sifting your flour as many times as possible so that there are no clumps in your batter. So for spinning, you have to card them so that running through a carding machine, which brushes the fibers open, 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 it teases them so that each fiber can be separated from its neighbor without any clumping. Um, so then, yes, so then they card it and then depending, it really depends on the, the processing, but say for the, the first yarn, I'll tell people it went to, um, Bartlett yarn in Halcyon, uh, Halcyon, uh, Harmony, Halcyon, Harmony, same thing, happiness. (laughs) (laughs) I went to Bartlett yarns in, in Harmony, Maine, and that is the last commercially operating spinning mule in the United States, a really beautiful piece of equipment utterly exquisite. 
Um, so after he ran it through the carding machine, then he brought it over and put it on the spinning mule, and the fibers twisted into yarn, what we consider yarn. At that point, you have singles, which need to be plied however you're going to ply them or not. So then it's taken, but they call it a twister. So it was taken to another floor where they had the twisting machine, which twisted two strands together. And then from there, it's moved over to a skeiner, where it's wound into whatever size, whatever circumference skeins we wanted. And then it was bagged up, and I got to drive a lot of it home. Wow. And, and it smelled so good. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. High from the yarn fumes. Yeah. Now, one of the things you said a moment ago was that the journey has been enchanting and heartbreaking at the same time. And I've already read that the scouring plant in Texas is the last remaining scouring plant in our country. And you just mentioned that the mill was the last mule spent mule spun will can't speak mill, <laughs> mill in the country is how can we regenerate this industry as yarn consumers what can we do to help bring it back is there anything we can do well that's what i'm trying to figure out there there is actually i found out there's one more commercial scouring plant but they are a top manufacturer and so they're not really that um, open right now to taking commissions from people like me if I was trying to make mm. yarn. It's, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. So really, Texas is the only one. Um, the, the issue is that we, we, do, we are building a fairly robust, if not still a little bit simple, infrastructure way down low within the knitting industry where we have the mini mills, which can process small amounts of yarn, uh, fiber, turn them into yarn so that you can have a flock of 20 sheep and make yarn out of it. Um, and, the, and we have smaller places that will scour for you, but it's the difference between being able to scour 10,000 pounds a week and uh, 1,000 pounds a week. It's the difference between charging 50 cents a pound and $5 a pound. Right. And for spinning, it's the difference between, you know, 8 to $11 a pound and $25 a pound. So it's... It, within our industry, it, it's it, the question really becomes how much do you need that six dollar skein of wool yarn? And if you really need that six dollar skein, we have to do some clever thinking in this country, or else it's going to be from Peru or China. Right. It's just how it's going to be. That that fortunately we will be able to have the. 22, the 26, the 32 dollar skeins of really beautiful, unusual yarns that tell a compelling story made in this country, but they're going to cost more. And it's not that anybody is necessarily getting rich and sitting there cackling, smoking cigars and saying, ha ha, you're all suckers. It's just, it's the nature of what remains in this country and how much it's, it's going to cost and, and the places where you can manufacture yarn on a large scale to compete with something like a, a Knit Picks or a Cascade 220. It, there are very, very tenuous links in every part of the chain. And it's, it's globalization. It's outsourcing. It's, it's just a lot of it is just gone. It's gone. Right. The, the machines have been sold for scrap and they're gone. Yeah. I would like to think that there's some way that we can do this. And I, I believe it. I have to believe it. 
We are clever people, you know, we're ingenious. Exactly. And the knitting community is phenomenal. So if anyone can yeah. do it, I think the knitters of yeah. the world can do it. I mean, look at the things yeah. we've set our mind to and accomplished. So, and I really think so. And the other thing about the cost of these, so we were talking to Deb about how to support this, the rare breed farmers. And it's, to me, it's the same theme. It's how to support this industry from the farmers to, to the, the mills. Exactly. Yeah. And you mentioned all the different steps the yarn, the fiber has to take before it becomes yarn in your local yarn store or online or wherever. And trying to remember when I'm shopping for yarn, all of those steps and how many different things are factored into the price of that skein of wool. And that it isn't someone cackling, smoking a cigar. It's someone who's making a hard, you know, they're working hard to produce yeah. what they are. And they're just trying to get a fair price, which is more expensive than Cascade 220. Now, I'm not knocking Cascade 220. I'm just saying. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, there's a reason that certain things are significantly more expensive. And I think it's just a, a choice, you know, if you have a yarn budget and you can afford to buy at least some that is supporting this industry in the United States, every little bit helps, right? Yeah. And, and that's really, I, I totally get that, uh, you know, money is very tight for a lot of people. I have not had a raise in 12 years. <laughs> so I, I really understand it. And I don't want to, you know, pompously like, go oh, buy all of your food at a place that costs five times as much and then spend <laughs> hours you, you making 15 course meals that you blog about. It's, it's, you got to be realistic. Um, but every penny that you spend is a vote toward something. Yeah. And so if you can be mindful about even a small movement of one or two of your yarn expenditures going to support something that's more local. And it's, it's astonishing the number of people that you will be supporting. I mean, you, you are supporting ultimately being able to drive through the countryside and admire open land, you know, yeah. that, that by virtue of supporting sheep farms, then you're supporting a tax basis for that community. Then you're supporting the guy who travels to trim the hooves of those sheep twice a year. You're supporting the shearers, multiple, multiple people who travel and work very hard. You're supporting the farmer. But then does that farmer have kids who go to the local school? You know, does that farmer sell online? Then they're supporting the post office. Just it ricochets so dramatically yeah, that if you consider it like a, a future tax that you pay, you know, just once or twice that, that what you're spending is going to have a very big effect in a positive way. Not uh, understanding that it's not like we're all in a position to just change our buying habits overnight. And I, I, it would be hypocritical of me to even suggest that, but one or two expenditures and just keeping your mind aware that whenever you're plunking money down, it's a vote for something. And are you voting for something that's taking us in the direction you want to go? Yeah. I like that. You said the ricochet or like a ripple effect on how many different aspects of the industry you support by just buying a single skein. So I do, I just like, feeling like I'm contributing somehow, you know, <laughs> because I obviously am not out there touching the sheep and I can't be. So I want to help. Yeah. And 
So for the Great White Veil, do you think you'll ever do something like that again? I the Great White Veil was a one one time deal in that I went into it completely not knowing what I was doing and what to expect and with a promise to be utterly honest and transparent about every step and what I saw and the mistakes that I made and what I learned and what I feared. And I feel like um, that can only happen once. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I suspected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I might, I mean, I've definitely, I still have the bug. And if I continue to do anything, if I continue the journey, it would be to continue learning and figuring things out and helping people. I really do like um, being in a position to kind of aid more people going through the this process. Like in Knitter's Review, that's always been part of my goal is to raise awareness and point people toward folks who are out there doing good things. Mm-hmm. And I like being able to approach it from this alternate angle. So um, I will probably be doing more things, but it can't be the Great White Veil. Right. So then for those of us who want to continue to learn about all these things that you're learning on your own and exploring. What's the best way for us to follow you? Is it your blog? Um, is it Knitter's Review? Are you going to publish another book? I mean, what is what can you recommend to us? To- <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard nowadays, isn't it? It's like, well, you can follow me on Pinterest, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on MySpace. On- no, not MySpace, but... Um, Knitter's Review, you'll always know what's going on there. Or Facebook. Facebook is always, if you want the slightly unedited version of things. Or Twitter. I tweet about things. Okay. Or Instagram. I send pictures <laughs> out to people. Or, or yeah. I, I will keep people posted on whatever's happening. There will be a journey. Just uh, figure out what what would best serve people and what is most interesting and exciting for me personally. Okay. Well, once again, I just have to thank you so much, first, for taking the time to be on the podcast with us. I'm so humbled and flattered. And second, for all that you do for the world of knitting. I just think you're fantastic. Yeah, it's been really, really interesting and really fun to learn everything that Gail and I have started to learn. (laughs) And you know what also is pretty funny? I've obviously never met you, and I hope I get to meet you and Deb someday. But just chatting with both of you, it almost feels like you could just be the neighbor or a friend <laughs> from a local yarn shop. Or you guys are such real people too. I just mm-hmm. think of you as these these rock stars that are so <laughs> amazing and educated and they're experts. But you guys are just real people too. It's wonderful. Well, you know, I put my sequined fur pants on one leg at a time, just like you. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you. <laughs> we do too. <laughs> Okay, well, Sarah, thank you again so much. We so appreciate it, and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. We appreciate it. I just want to say that again, and we're looking forward to whatever comes next. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Happy knitting, everybody. Happy knitting. Thank you.
You're welcome. Hello, this is Charlene and Gail, and we are recording just a few days before the release of this episode, a week or so after we recorded with Clara, and we just wanted to add a few things. Number one, we have a copy of Clara's book, The Yarn Whisperer, to give away. And if you would like to win this book, please leave a comment in the thread, which we will open in our Ravelry group. And hopefully someone will be very excited to win the book. It's very entertaining reading. It is. Yeah. It is. Very and a quick nice. read, too. It it's, is a quick yeah. read. And the copy that we have is an almost new copy. Gail and I have both read it. But, but we read it very carefully. <laughs> we did. So not to bend pages or leave, you know, right. drool marks. No. Or, <laughs> you know what would be really, really cool? If the winner is interested in doing such a thing, if we actually got this book passed around, because it is such a quick read, and yeah. it's not necessarily something that you'd read again and again and again, like a yeah. reference book. So it would be kind of neat if it got passed around. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and once again, thanks so much to Clara and to Deb for their time in the interviews on the recent episodes. And we will have another upcoming episode, another interview with another indie dyer and yarn provider. Mm-hmm. So a little different spin on the interviews for the wool series. Right. And we will be starting a new segment. segment. I was going to say episode. <laughs> that's not the right word. A new segment. What are you swatching? Where we will share information about the different breed specific and maybe not always specifically breed specific, but new to us yarns that we are trying out. Right. And we already have quite a lot that we, we will a, be swatching. We have a backstock yeah. of yarns to start swatching. Yeah, we have the Targi and BFL Aaron from Kim of Western Sky Knits. Plus, I just returned from my vacation and Charlene had boxes of <laughs> yarn that wonderful people have sent to us to swatch with and review for all of you and a lot to give away as prizes. Right. It's very so exciting. We, yeah. So our series has gotten a little bit of notoriety yeah which is so fun and all of the great feedback that we've had in the threads about people appreciating what they're learning has been been really fun it's been really fun and i'm just glad that other people are interested because when we started we weren't sure how well received it would be so definitely please keep giving us feedback and any questions you have definitely put them in the threads because in the different interviews we'll do or contacts we make, we can get those questions answered for you. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again in two weeks. Bye. Happy knitting. You can find us on iTunes at Yarniacs Podcast. Visit our blog with show notes at yarniacs.com. We have a growing Ravelry group, and you can follow us on Twitter at Yarniacs. Goodbye and good knits.